You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 86 for Monday the 23rd of October 2017. My guest today is Lucy Branch, whose fiction has been featured on Radio 4, Time Out London and the BBC World Service. She's an expert in the conservation of public sculpture and has worked on some of the UK's highest profile projects, including Nelson's Column, Eros and Cleopatra's Needle. She studied at University College London, the Royal College of Art and Victoria Albert Museum. Her knowledge and passion for the art world is poured into her fiction, which she weaves together with myth, conspiracy theory and fantasy. She's self-published two books now, A Rarer Gift Than Gold, An Alchemist Conspiracy Mystery and Girl in a Golden Cage, a magical realism romance novel. When I chatted to Lucy, I started by asking her to tell me all about her fascinating day job. I do have a really lovely day job and I feel a bit guilty saying that because I know that a lot of writers are um, are plotting to escape their d- day job and go into the the sort of the other the other world um, but I'm a restorer uh, I work predominantly on sculptural and historic architectural features so what that involves is um, particularly working in situ uh, at different public monuments and usually contemporary artworks as well. And also in lots of very interesting buildings like places like the Natural History Museum or um, the county hall buildings in various city centres and uh, places where uh, I get to work after hours when when all the uh, all the mice come out, but also I think all the interesting parts of the building you get to see on your own. This is fabulous so. work. I know that when I worked for the BBC, I used to feel really privileged because I would get to see a world that nobody else got to see. And, and this is really interesting about your job because you've worked on Eros, uh, Cleopatra's yeah. Needle, Nelson's Column. This is access that most people just get on the television. You're Absolutely. right up close fascinating stuff yeah and they're huge up close they are really i mean large scale sculpture is is what i do but they really are large and whenever people get to come and visit and have a look they can't believe quite how these these they're real heroes actually the big monuments when you get up close to them you kind of feel what that their importance resonate through them even though obviously all nearly all of them are long dead but um, it's it is quite a, it's a privilege actually. Now, how did you get into this? Because it, it can't be just the kind of job you stumble into. No, I was I lucked out actually very much so. I uh, but my father started the business before me, and uh, my mother's a sculptress. So the whole field of restoration has been around with me since I since I can remember and um, my dad my dad was a really brilliant man 
he um, unfortunately passed away at Christmas, but um, he he was an absolute genius uh, in the field of restoration and was very good friends with some of the real titans of uh, art. So people like Barbara Hepworth, uh, who he did original patination work for, and Henry Moore, and lots, lot, I mean, lots of the real uh, heavyweights in the field, and. He was one of those people that um, restoration came to him in a, in a way, a funny sort of experience. He was in Egypt and he was um, doing military service, as many young men had to do. And he was just a poor boy, really, from Dagnum with very little education. And he said that he went out um, with all the troops to where the pyramids and the sphinxes were. And um, he said the the men... Uh, used to do target practice on them. Uh, Horrendous, I know. Um, But he said that when he first witnessed that happening, he said he felt like he was watching murder. He felt like there was something deeply, deeply wrong that they were doing. And, you know, peer pressure, etc. I don't think he could really voice it um, because everybody did it. And he came back from military service and decided that he wanted to be someone that kind of be a sculpture doctor he wanted to heal monuments he wanted to make things better and so it was a really pivotal moment in his life and and i think that inspired well really anyone we're a family business so really anyone that's come close to him has been inspired by the kind of uh, sort of brilliance that he had and devotion to it and I'm guessing there can't be that many of you around. I know that we, we used to live in a very old um, uh, stone um, station house and the stone had been hand chiseled. And, yes. and, when, and when you get into stonework, it's a very specialist job. And there are yeah. very few people delivering that service and those skills now. I'm guessing you're in that sort of area, are you, with that work? Absolutely. And th- uh, there, are, there are some, for sure. But the other... Uh, issue is that there hasn't it hasn't been a field that's been served very well by traditional training so even though you could go and study something like archaeological conservation it's entirely different set of skills to working on really huge objects and especially when you're not in a nice little comfortable studio with every tool at your beck and call and so actually there there still isn't really many um courses that where where we can you can get people to come into the field who actually have anywhere near the right skills so uh, it's a combination of things which make makes it quite specialist and um also there's lots of things that hamper people you know you've got to be great at heights lots of people don't like that uh, they like the objects, but they don't want to be hanging off of the top of a building. I'm thinking of Nelson's <laughs> column. That's quite a way. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. I know. I mean, you know, I, we were lucky in 2006 when we uh, did that project. We were lucky enough to have the most luxurious scaffold. It was really magnificent. But um, you know, what my dad went up there after the war. He was given 110 pounds, and he thought that was a fortune. But I mean, he went up there on like rope ladders. And uh, I mean, if you get to the top of that, it is so it's wider than a pavement at the past, just where the Corinthian leaves are. And just to think to go underneath that and throw your leg over onto that upper section. I mean, that would be absolutely terrifying, let alone coming down. It would be even worse. But I mean, it was ridiculous. He's given £110 to go and and see whether it was wobbly because if any bombs had dropped on it. I was like, but what if it was wobbly? What would happen then? 
Uh, you know, you couldn't hold him up all day. <laughs> These are the days before health and safety was invented, ah, of course. None. And, and, you know, he really resented health and safety. He felt like it was all made up. But, you know, th- thank goodness, because yeah. otherwise I would have been doing that. <laughs> So you must have grown up with this then as, as a child. And I'm assuming that, like you know, most parents, you were dragged along to the jobs and you, you took your inspiration from, what, start, starting as an apprentice, I guess. Well, yeah, I actually, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't taken along to many jobs, but I begged to be taken along to jobs because it re- I, I think, you know, it, it's probably um, a different era now. It was sort of uh, not so much take your child to school day when, when I was young anyway. But um, it, there was a lot of storytelling about what had gone on during the day. And there was a lot of discussion about um, when we were out and about around London, uh, bronzes. So we'd go to, if you went to Hamley's, uh, I, you know, most kids, they're looking in the shop of, you know, what fantastic toys are on the window. My dad and I are discussing what the, what the window frames, how special they are and how, how unique they've been made and who could have possibly done something like that. So there was a lot of focus on um, these beautiful things that are around us. That, so I couldn't really escape it. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a lovely, um, rich life, though. But also as a child, um, in many respects, being taught to look above the doorways. Um, yeah. that, that's often where the magic lies in cities, and particularly a city like London. Absolutely. I think London, we're, you know, we're, I, I mean, I'm, my, my mother is from the north. So not to knock uh, the fact that because uh, I, I love the north and they've got some beautiful, beautiful things as well. But um, being based here in London, I, my, a lot of my work's predominantly here. And I've, I've got to say, I, I just I, I keep I'm always saying to people, you know, we are living in an art gallery in so many ways, even in your city streets. You know, we, we're surrounded by I mean, sculptors that um, are really people pay fortunes to see in big public galleries um, all around the world. And yet we've got those artists um, on the streets. Uh, I'm, I'm working on an Epstein at the moment in Parliament Square. And, you know, he's he's celebrated all over the world. But I don't think people realise that he did public, you know, big public monuments as well. Now, you said to me earlier that uh, you're not like typical writers in that you're not rushing to get out of your job and you're quite clearly uh, very passionate and invested in what you do as your yeah. as your day job it's, it's hardly a day job really it's like a I, I don't know it's like a, <laughs> a wonderful hobby isn't it that pays I guess it sounds wonderful yeah. so I've got to ask you then what what made you start writing most people use it as a way of yeah. digging themselves out of a job you, you don't sound yeah. like that was your motivation no not at all so um the first I mean I I've got to say my my work is very practical and I get a lot of time to think. And uh, I my first book uh, came out of a lot of those uh, sessions where I don't I don't work. I don't listen to podcasts when I'm when I'm working. I, I tend to be quite focused, but my mind does wander. And the first book was really inspired by the work because I've got a, a great love of chemistry uh, it was a subject I studied uh, at university and I, I, my work and the, the myth of alchemy, which is the one that I wrote my first, uh, well, my, the first series will be about, is, is it was something that I felt that I wanted to impart and to sort of open it because not many people really understand 
the field that I'm in. And there's even you can even niche down smaller into uh, sort of the segments of the field. And it's so specialist. Most people have never even heard of some of the things that we do. And I kind of thought it was this great opportunity to bring people in through a myth that they would have heard of. And yet um, and yet tie into a sort of realism with the chemistry and uh, tie into my my uh, world of historic features. And so it, it kind of it came together and I had the idea for a long time. I didn't execute it for, you know, a number of years. It was written and not finished and, you know, all those kind of things. I don't know. I had children in the middle and, you know, it, that kind of thing. But then I love the writing it was so fulfilling and it was this wonderful opportunity to escape and it, I just felt suddenly that there was all this fodder for fiction so the the fiction really is a, a, a pulse um that's within me that I can feel beating away and I'm I've one of the things I I know from your diaries that I've heard you say is, um, oh, the nonfiction, it sells great. But, uh, you know, and you've got all this blood, sweat and tears with the fiction selling yeah. fiction. But the thing is that um, there's something about fiction which really gets you. Uh, and it's it's such a pleasure to do. But ironically, of course, uh, what I'm being asked for constantly is the nonfiction but um, the only problem is it kind of feels a bit like work. So when I sit down at the end of the day, which is when I do most of my writing, you know, I don't necessarily want to write about corrosion and I don't know the elements and et cetera. But um, I, I must say, I think I've got to turn my attention to it because uh, I think there is definitely a market for it. And learning all about self-publishing has made me, really realize that you know being an author entrepreneur if you're going to do that side of it you you need to take those opportunities if they're there so for for you then the the end game with this and I know we're rushing ahead talking about the end game here but it's 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 not to quit the day job it's to do the day job but to use the writing as a as a release for something that you don't get to release at work it is. And also, well, I say about the not using the day job because I'm I'm going to completely pimp the day job <laughs> because that was um, what I thought is I have a platform. I've got, a, you know, please, God, it continues. But I've, I've got a good reputation. The business has been established a long time and it has momentum and it has lots of people that email us constantly. And I've got tons of email addresses and things like that. And I kind of felt like from the very beginning, I would use um, I would use I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to really begin as a, a new writer with no um, not nobody ever heard of me. So I thought to myself, how can I gain some momentum with for this book? But um, using my strengths and my strengths were that people are interested in monuments. And so I focused my attention on getting PR, which was jointly useful. It, whether nobody ever bought a book, it didn't matter because then I was talking about my business and that meant that I was getting a higher profile. But I would also talk about the book and how it tied in and what there was that was interesting about it and hopefully sold some books. And that really worked very well, uh, particularly for the first book. Um, I 
learned a few things since then, obviously from all the uh, research and reading and listening that I constantly do and um, realising that probably I might have um, sort of peaked a little bit early in that sense because really if I'd have had a series, that kind of publicity could have fed through and people would have bought a whole series. But I was completely novice when I began and I didn't realise that that asset um, was was there. And, and, and I mean, I can certainly do more of that. Um, but I think if I'd have held back and managed to write a few before I'd have gone for it, then I'd have probably got more bang for my buck. So let's take you right back to when you started to write then. Uh, I mean, I, obviously, you, you'd been to university, so you've got that, that academic ability yeah. to, to bang out the words and to write the essays and to do sustained pieces of writing. Yeah. But had you ever done any uh, creative writing in, in, a, in a formal sense in terms of publishing anything? Um, no, I, I've got to embarrassingly admit that I did a huge amount of, I suppose, what you would call fan fiction, but I didn't know it was that at the time, um, as uh, from teenage right through um, to sort of young adulthood. So uh, particularly in very dull lessons like geography, <laughs> I used to, you know, I, I would sit with my book on my knee and I would write reams of storylines with that were outside of whatever book I was reading at the time. New characters, extra things they should have done that particular hero or heroine. And so actually, when I look back over all that, I had many, many books. And actually, that was a really good um, sort of way of really exploring your imagination and seeing where it could go and actually uh tagging it to the act of writing rather than anything else so no formal training and no um no no I, w I wish I had done now I look back and I think you know I, that was clearly something I really enjoyed doing I wonder why I didn't pursue it but I think I was just too busy trying to get on with life yeah, sometimes you could miss the life that uh, the, the clues that life gives you. I think, and it, yeah. do, it does sound very much like you are a writer, but maybe you just hadn't clocked that. Um, I think as well. I was sort of, in a way, a pretty brainwashed. I thought I knew exactly what I was going to do in life. You know, without a doubt, I loved the business, the the statues. You know, everyone you know around me was talking about was something I was really passionate about, and I kind of felt like you know that was obviously the only thing, but you know, a little bit of maturity, a little bit of uh, hindsight, you look back and you think, actually, there were some clues there. And I mean, other, uh, you know, I was an absolutely passionate reader, uh, devoured everything and still do. And all those little things that you think, actually, you know, I'd, I kind of shut myself off from them because I decided where I was going. A uh, bit black and white, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> when you did sit down to write formally, so we weren't scribbling in exercises books, you, yeah. you set out with the aim of actually writing a book. What what yeah. did that look like to you with the first book? Was it a was it chaotic or was it ordered? Well, I thought it was quite brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite brilliant until I sent it. I, I used the writer's workshop um, to uh, send it off to, to get an appraisal, because I really didn't know. I, I hadn't even heard of self-publishing. And uh, it wasn't anything that I just thought to myself, I need somebody who I can't, you know, I'm, I was too embarrassed to show it to my husband. And I just thought, you know, I, I need feedback. I need help. and. Um, what the what came back, uh, lots of red ink, but what came back was very much um, 
sort of a picture of the fact that the book was was there, but I didn't have any kind of grip on pace at all. And so I, I she she was very kind about the the lyrical aspect of it, as in she she liked the way that I expressed myself, but. Um, you know, I would natter on about, I don't know, a bronze door for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't uh, the, the pace was was um, a little bit too uh, was all over the place. And so it was that kind of criticism which was so brilliant and so useful because it meant that I could actually go away. And then as soon as you start realizing there's a weakness there, you see other weaknesses. It's like they were invisible to me before but suddenly other things come to the fore you realize that actually you haven't given a character any depth or you haven't um you're you've you've really you've introduced a plot line that wasn't particularly valuable um and that those things definitely came out of having that really independent advice of someone that didn't like me or you know have any any axe to grind but just wanted to help and that that was really useful but yet we have to learn to take feedback as authors and sometimes it's not the feedback that we would like to have received you sound like you just took that on the chin are you fairly good with feedback I've I I did go back for more punishment um (laughs) at the beginning two or three times and every time it was brutal and I couldn't reply um nicely to the email that came in at the beginning every time I had to go away for at least two or three days and just take deep breaths and read it over and over but the reality is that if you're asking someone for help you need to listen to them and I I I think my dad was quite a hard taskmaster in some ways you know he didn't pull his punches if something was dreadful he would just downright say it but the reality is that I wanted to I wanted to get better. And so as soon as I'd licked my wounds for a couple of days and thought, gosh, what a cow. But then I came back again and read it and thought, you know what? She's she's got a point. And so and I've even done that, actually, with reviews. Uh, I've you know, you shouldn't really read your reviews, should you? Common knowledge. But I've actually a few of them I've read through and I thought, God, that's totally unfair. And then I sat down and I have thought about it and. I, I, I've, you know, I think I've definitely grown from it. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I've got a thick skin. <laughs> I think you must have. Well, I, I think with reviews, I just think you've got to uh, make sure that you're in a strong mind mode before you do it. You've, uh, you've got to make sure you're yeah. in a resilient frame of mind. Uh, you shouldn't do it after a long day at work when you've had a bad day and you're tired, I think. That's, no, pick, no. Pick, pick your moment just in case there's a bad one lurking in there. And, and and also, I think with the second book, I haven't, I don't think I've looked at the reviews hardly at all. Uh, but the first one, you know, you're so desperate for some confirmation that, you you know, it was worth the time and the effort. So I think there is a lot more uh, sort of, of, of need for validation on the first book. The second one, I felt, you know, it, I felt more confident about it. I felt like I've written a decent book here. It may not ever you know be a rowling but it's 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 okay when you uh, wrote the book and you obviously went through some revisions as well uh, how long did it actually take you to get to a point where you thought right well that's it's good by me and it's it's taken on board all that horrible feedback that you got as well um i it took a full year i i it took a full year i had three in that year i had three sort of go backs to them and saying you know has this improved it 
Uh, and it was, again, a yes, it's a lot better, but no, there, there's a lot needs to be done still. And each time that was useful. So that wasn't really, I suppose that's what you call developmental editing, but I didn't know that at the time specifically. But it, it was a really, it was, it was really like going to school anyway. Uh, everything from, you know, you're, sent, you're talking about sentences and, uh, and structure to uh, even grammar and things like that. And, and it really took me to task on everything. So, yeah, a full year before it went to then what you'd call a, a kind of line edit. I've got a lot of time for writers' workshop. I've been to their uh, York course that they do a yeah. couple of times. Did you get yeah. in, involved with them in, in the wider sense? I, do you know, I didn't really. They were very nice and sent my manuscript off to a traditional publisher. Um, so, that you know, I think <laughs> they thought to themselves, my God, if this woman keeps sending us back this manuscript, we're going to, you know, we've got to get rid of her somehow. So um, they did. And, you know, it wasn't a, a great... I, I'm not a great match for a traditional publisher. I can't see them thinking that I am at all because I certainly can't write anywhere near the speed that someone like you can. <laughs> I, I, I sit every week in awe of the fact that you've knocked another 5,000 words out in two days. Yeah, but you should read the drivel I write. Day or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the thing is that that, and that's obviously what you, you know, part of your background of writing to those deadlines has done for you. Uh, for me, um, I just I'm so disrupted with the tiny bit of writing time that I have each day that it takes quite a lot of time to get out even 500 words because to get into a flow, I just, you know, I have snatches of time. And by the time you're flowing, you're finished. So, um, yeah, I, I think they're a very, very good writers workshop. I've been involved in other uh, sort of self-publishing services and they were no they were nowhere near as good well i'm going to try a, a little bit more of paul's um amateur psycho babble here because uh, i'm interested that you you work the work that you do on the statues uh, must be uh, very slow and, and, and painstaking and require patience yeah. and, and you're saying about my word count that's really an indicator of my impatience but i i would put it to you that because you're used to watching the pot come to boil very slowly in your day job that perhaps you've got more patience with your writing there, I think there is an element of that. Uh, I think that uh, I I do take my time over things and uh, I like to, and it's, it, do you know, I mean, they call writing a cra the craft of writing, but there's something I, very craft-like about it. It, it is uh, a sort of, it's a, you know, uh, I could, there's a definitely a similarity between the, the fact that I'm practical in my daily life and the way that I write but I do think that there is a what and a, the thing that I really um, envy about your what sounds like your workday schedule is that thing of having a block of time. And my life is not like that. I, I have three children and they are young. And I started finding my writing time when I did a mid-career master's many years ago. And what I did is I used to do my day job come back, do tea and bedtime and all the things that you have to do with kids reading stories. And then I would go downstairs, make a cup of tea, walk back upstairs and sit at the computer and do an hour and a half, if I had it in me, um, to, of research or work. Now, training myself to do nothing but that routine every night, in, it still took me nearly five years to get a master's because I was only doing it one day a week. But that that habit is where I write my novels, that habit of just 
finishing the day, going, getting a cup of tea and sitting straight down and doing nothing else has been a really valuable thing. But when you're tired in the evening uh, and you've got very little left creatively, it can be hard to sort of get into a flow, which when you're not so, you know, when you're not so fatigued comes quite naturally and easily. Well, you know, I know the bedlam of a house with three young kids. Mine are all taller than me now. But I know I remember those times. Yeah. <laughs> and it really feels like you're in the trenches. You know, you're doing a, a day job and then it's back and it's story time and the kids need to settle down. And there is no pattern to life. So I yeah. think you've done exceptionally well to have well, got I do the writing tend done. To- I, I tend to, um, I find that I'm reading the kids' stories and I start, I start taking notes. <laughs> I start thinking, gosh, this, this author's really cracking. I mean, you know, he's really, he's managed to keep the pace of this chapter <laughs> fantastic. I'm thinking, I wonder if my fight scenes should be longer. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, I read a post by you about Edith Blyton, didn't I? That was you, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. And like, you know, you do, you do start, I start looking at Enid Blyton, you know, I mean, Enid Blyton, everybody criticises. But the thing is that um, I, I have to read such a lot of it to, you know, six and seven year old daughter that, um, you know, you do start thinking, well, you know, she got that serious thing off to a tee. She's giving the, everyone the same thing each time, but slightly different and this and that. And, you know, you can see why she was a success. Yeah. And we all lapped it up. I read nonstop Enid Blight when I was a kid. I loved it. I did too, but I, I, you know, it gets it gets constant criticism as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's like Agatha Christie. It's it's of its time, but they, yeah. as you say, they were on to the principles. They got the principles entirely. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And, and look how well they still sell, uh, even yeah. now. So, I know. Yeah, we can learn a lot from them. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, looking at your Amazon author page, there is right. a picture of a rarer gift than gold. Yeah, with, um, with a different cover on. So you've now got, uh, yes. you've now got look, what look like very high expense Dan Brown esque covers of the books. Oh well, but, no, those are the those are the low expense are they? ones. Well, they look yes. great. Oh, do you like them? Oh, I that's do. so nice to hear. Oh, I do because like them. I, I did have a very um, I I did have help. Well, I didn't. I had a, a cover designer do those, but I really spent very little. Um, what I did is I decided that once I had a series, because I'd learned something by then, once I had a proper series, I would invest proper money in getting expensive covers. Um, and I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe when I have three or four books so that I can, it will be it will be worth it. But the first book is um, and the reason there is a separate cover is um, because the first I published originally through a company, a self-publishing company. Ah. And um, I, do you know, I am an entrepreneur through and through, and I cannot, I just cannot bear people doing things, running th- things for me. And um, I, I didn't understand quite what they were doing when I, when I signed the contract with them. So what I, I didn't realize is that they, I thought they would set this up and do my cover and did, and I would tell them what I wanted, which is what I did. But I didn't realize that then they would hold on to it like a traditional publisher and run it essentially. And actually I really, that, that was a nightmare. I thought I would get the logins for KDP and I would just, and my website and things, and they would just pass it across and then I would run off with it and deal with it. But they would have actually done the steps I wanted to actually get me over the, the hump of publishing, which I didn't at the time I thought was an enormous mountain, but clearly now I, I know better. But um, 
that didn't suit me at all. But there has been complications in the fact that of, of sorting out getting the paperback uh, version down. And so um, and that's still dragging on. So I now have sort of two versions of the first book because I have my ebook back. Um, but I don't have um, full control still. That's, now, that's interesting. I didn't know you'd been through that experience. And, and it sounds like it's put you off for life then. You're, well, you're, you're yes, self-published through and through? I am self-published through, but I've got to say I am very envious of one aspect of it, which self-publishers do not have, are clearly just not able to access. Now, I, because I read so much, um, and immediately went to the self-publishing service after, after it was published and said, I want you to try and get me an editor's uh, an editor's pick on uh, Amazon. I want you to pitch my book for an editor's pick, or I want to, you to pitch it for some promotions, you know, uh, deal of the day, uh, autumn sale. I want some of these, please. Um, and I had no idea that actually it's really, really difficult for self-publishers to get anything like that. Well, I tell you what, they went bang, bang, bang. And I got, I got deal after deal. And, you know, my books sold thousands. I, I was number 14 in the whole Amazon store in America wow. uh, one day. Um, and it was just because I, they could get me visibility. They obviously had um, strings that I don't know or connections that we just cannot get. Because those deal of the days and things like that are just magic. And as far as I can tell from all the forums that I read through and Facebook groups and things, they are just, we're, 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 you know, if we've got KDP Select, we can have five days free. But these were paid promotions. So I got tons of money. So I learned something, but I can't access it as I can't access it as an indie. And you know, knowing that, it's very tempting to think to yourself, "Well, would it be worth having something like that? You know, someone like that representing me?" But then I, I just can't abide having people run things, and you know, you know, emails not being responded to, and they treat you, I think, pretty much as traditional publishers treat authors, which is you know as we both know not very well yeah but hang on you you see this is i, I was going to ask you about this because on your audio book you've got 64 reviews this is in the uk i haven't, I haven't looked at the us okay. actually and then uh maybe i should look at the us too but on you your, mean my kindle um yeah you're, you're, you're on um, amazon your okay. oh it must be the paperback actually so the paperback's linked to the audio so you've got yes, 64 possibly. on a rarer gift than gold that's got 64 yeah. reviews and then which is a, a huge number of reviews i mean that you know, any indie author will tell you that takes some doing. It's taken me forever to get reviews. Yeah, but when you get like, I don't know, four and a half thousand paid downloads, people bother to review it. You know, that's the kind of numbers that getting a sale, uh, getting on an autumn sale on Amazon when you're on the second page does for you. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. And I, I just wish that somehow the indies could be able to, because a self-publishing service, what, what is that different from many indies who have a dozen books? They're just doing it for someone, but somehow they have some, some extra level of promotional pull that we don't have. Well, I'm intrigued by this because um, most of us, you're, you're saying, oh, you admire 
being able to write so many books. But of course, the problem is, it's all right writing books, but you can't sell them. You can't shift exactly. them. And that's always exactly. where we, that's where most of us fall down is trying to shift the books. But it's this problem of visibility. And the thing is that as soon as uh, Amazon gives you a bit for free, you can prove that your book is worth reading because people, you know, they, they see it, they want it. It's not that many of us aren't producing really quite decent books, but unfortunately we're, we're swallowed into the sea of, of, of other books on Amazon. And so it just is a shame that, that somehow we're not being let in a little bit uh, to those, because I mean, you know, I know, I mean, I've been lucky enough. I secured a book bub right out of the gates and I was very, very lucky. I followed um, the advice from the Alliance of Independent Authors um, to the T and I got it. And uh, it was nothing compared to what I got through Amazon downloads. I mean, it really was something else. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the best drug you can get. <laughs> well, we all want to see those sales pouring in like absolutely that. Uh, i've yet to have that thrill unfortunately but um, I, I look forward to the day oh you're not far off uh, well, i'm not sure about that but uh, um what i what i must ask you of course is that it's all right making the sales but we also then take a um, they take a cut they take a percentage so you're not they getting do, your 70 yeah. percent. so what sort of numbers were you dealing oh, with no, no, but um the 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 um on what sort of what sort of number uh, financially wise? Oh, well, no, you don't, don't need to give me the, uh, the the figures that you earn. But what yeah. was your um, royalty cut? Bearing in mind that there was a middleman involved there. Well, no, I got full royalty. Wow! But what I did is I paid for um, I paid for a book cover. I paid for like it's a, it's a package type thing, and it's I'm sure that somewhere I know you've inter- in uh, you've interviewed. Um, Troubadour, yes. Troubadour, yes. yeah. Um, it, similar, similarly to that, there are certain packages which you can get some PR and you can get some. Uh, uh, you get a book cover and you get uh, proofreading, perhaps. Uh, and um, but partic- it's sort of uh, and they they create you a little website and those kind of things. Now, they were all things that I just thought, you know what, at the beginning when I knew nothing, I just thought I just don't have time for that. Um, and so it was a it was a few thousand pounds. Um, but do you know what the PR in itself, in terms of even what it's brought me uh, through my business? Because I've, I've been asked to write for things like um, uh, World of Interiors. Um, I've had, you know, I've been on Radio 4 BBC World Service, Time Out London, all of that kind of thing in terms of what it did for my profile of my business alone, my my day job business, you know, was worth its weight in gold. So the thing is that um, actually that worked, but it wouldn't work necessarily. Um, They didn't take a cut out of my royalties is what I'm trying to say. So that was fair enough. That sounds like a pretty good deal. So I, I really rate uh, Matador and Troubadour. I think their service yeah. is, is great. And I think if you really don't want to do all those um, initial things, you, you kind of get half of the treatment of um, a traditional author. But I think yeah. they're great services. They're not hugely expensive um, no. compared to the learning and the work you've got to do. And I think Absolutely. they're a really viable option, as, you, as you've just proven, actually. Well, yeah, they are a viable option. I, I've got to say, the reason that I'm not um, blurting out names of what um, who I worked with is just because I did have some issues as well. And I think one of the reasons that I had so much success luck, I, you know, it was okay. I, I lucked out to some extent, 
was because I was really on it. Uh, and that's because, you know, I, I run everything through the business. My, my husband and I run the business together. But, you know, we have to keep an eye on every single aspect from SEO of the website to the invoicing to to documentation. I mean, everything. And so the fact that I, w- I approached it just like I would one of my other projects, I think, helped a great deal. And and so it worked better for me than it might have done if I had. And, and I, I, I know many others um, who have become friends who were also in the same system who definitely didn't have that experience. But, you know, I'm not sure if that was just, you know, dumb luck or whether it was because of the way that I, I went at it. And how much of that has carried through with you to book two? And, and, and now you're out of that initial launch uh, fever. Does yeah. it? Does it does it tick along nicely or do you have no, to keep I, pumping it? I think you have to keep pumping it. And also, um, I um, I think when I took back the ebook and changed covers and now I've got a little bit of a mixed message because there's like a paperback in one cover and, and it, you know, things like that. I don't think it did. And also I lost my I lost my ranking um, when I changed the ebook because I had to. Uh, sort of public it was essentially a new edition because it was no longer published by these other people um because they didn't they published it through their own name i don't know if troubadour do that i'm not sure um but essentially i it was almost like starting again so all the momentum that i had um gained through the uh just through the publicity etc disappeared when i when i changed it over to being myself publishing it and that for me was worth it because I felt like the t- I felt like I mean all books tail off um, with organic traffic and I felt like there'd come a point where I wasn't really getting met enough organic sales to really worry about losing the revenue and so um, I have had to again give it the pushes that all of us are trying to do like book bub and and um, things like that and I think. The, the big problem, which we all know about writing slowly or maybe, a, you know, book a year or book every 18 months is that it's really hard to sustain the interest in your series. Um, and so I think that that's a, a new struggle, really. Um, and I don't think I've come across really any author who writes, uh, you know, slowly that that isn't struggling with that. Um, I, I wish I could solve it. When you came to book two, then. Did, did you catch the tail of that wave or, or not? I, I, well, what I did is I, um, I definitely capitalised off everything that had happened before because I could say, uh, you know, author, you know, uh, best-selling author. I mean, it, it was a best-selling book in, you know, science fiction's a huge category, uh, you know, best-selling author in, in that category. And, um, and, and it really had done in paid as well. I mean, it was all paid because I couldn't do a zero sale through this other uh, through the uh, self, the other self-publishing service. And um, so all those things that I was able to attribute to me as an author carried forward into the next book. So it, it did give it social proof and credibility. And um, there were I'd had quite a lot of people get in contact with me. I was able to, even I didn't even at the time, didn't know about... Um, I didn't know about email lists at that precise moment, but I knew enough to think, you know what, every single person who's going to, who's emailing me, I'm going to chat with. And I did. And and many of them are, are really good friends in, in the online space now. And so I had people to tell 
And that meant I got, I think I got at least a dozen reviews quite quickly. And that was before really understanding about, you know, street crews and arc copies and all of that, because I I still really wasn't quite, I I did Nick Stevenson's course, but it wasn't until the book was out. Um, And so I kind of had to do some things retrospectively. When you came to write book two, how was the experience? Did you feel like you'd learned a lot from those punishing sessions with the, the editor at Writer's Workshop? Definitely. Did it, did it come easier? It definitely came easier. Mm. And um, I re- it was one of those books that, um, uh, you know, really wrote itself in lots of ways. I, I, I had the idea and it was one of those ones I really looked forward to sitting down every night to write because uh, it was, a, it, you know, I, it was faster paced from the off. Um, and the, the annoying thing is just that, you know, it, it hasn't sold as well as the first book. And I think um, I was listening to one of the Ally Q&As the other day and um, they were saying most often first books sell the best. Um, and it's just so frustrating because we all know that we write better books yeah. <laughs> further along. And yet, it, you know, my bigger audience has been the first one. Uh, but I really loved it. And I've, I've got to say this um, third one that I'm writing at the moment has been more of a struggle than that second one. And I think it's because in a way I'm trying to uh, uh, the second one, again, not knowing quite so much. I, I did something which was um, it was sort of off center. I wrote the next story um, about the ca- the main character in the first book, but I wrote it from somebody else's point of view. So the story was somebody else's story, but that person came across the person in the first book, and and uh, so it told the original character's story, but through the eyes of someone else. Um, in, in, you know, the next chapter of that character story. And I really loved doing that. But it was ridiculous in some ways, because you should always you should try to keep the same voice of the main character, because people like that, and they like to carry it through. And um, it it just, it it flowed so easily for me, whereas I've gone back to writing the uh, main character's point of view, and uh, carrying on with that um, more in a linear form, and I'm finding it harder. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've had a few ups and downs this year. As I mentioned, my, my, my father died. And so that has uh, it hasn't helped my writing, put it like that. Uh, I do feel like there's there's a period of grief that makes writing quite hard. Y- yes, absolutely. And I mean, you your your story is when I think of of the rhythms of, of everyday life with young children, uh, oh, yeah. with bereavement, with having to keep, I mean, the work that you're doing, you've just told me about all the invoicing and all of that. This is a phenomenal amount of work to do with running Absolutely. a business as well. And, and you've got to turn up and do a nine to five or, or you know, whatever your, your yeah. working day is. So I think the fact that you're writing at all is astonishing. I congratulate you on, well, on achieving that. I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably keeping me sane really, because, you know, I, I, it's that escapism from uh, the, the the sort of everyday, I think is good for everyone. I think it's a tonic. What kind of scrutiny did you subject that second book to? You went a couple of rounds in the ring yeah. with Writer's Workshop, um, the first so one. The first one. The second one, I just found myself, um, I th- actually, oh God, I'm, I'm a devil for listening to podcasts and falling, you know, sort of, I, I wouldn't say in love with, but uh, certainly falling for some of the guests that come onto it. So I was listening to a podcast and I heard about this great um, 
uh, editor that was uh, specialised in developmental editing and he sounded so brilliant. And so I whipped my manuscript off to him and, I mean, utterly, you know, hopeless. Um, You know, kind of, I think it's about, you know, four or five months later, I got like a two-line reply about what they'd thought. And, I mean, by that time, I'd spent four months kind of polishing it myself. Um, And I'd asked a few people, I'd had a bit more confidence. So I asked a couple of people in the interim to beta read it, etc. And then I went, did what I should have done in the first place, which is uh, found myself an editor through the index at Ally and uh, paid for a uh, sort of line edit, but sort of more of a content stroke line edit um, and um, got a, a very good sort of feedback on it that they felt the pace was fine, they felt the story worked, and they they really um, tidied it up. She really tidied it up absolutely brilliantly. And so, actually, that second one didn't have the uh, the sort of quite such the agonising step that the the first one had. But um, but I, I think it I think it just was better. I just think it was a better novel. In many respects, you've had a wonderful experience that many authors never get to experience I at all. I know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's incredible, but but yet you are in the same position as the rest of us again now. Of course, um, yeah. And, and so um, the marketing, the, the finding the time to get the writing done as well. How do yeah. you approach the, the marketing? What, what do you do to, to try and fan the flames for these books? I, I try my hardest to tap into... Um, my my market that is within my uh my professional field so uh, i have done a giveaway uh, giveaways through my uh, we have like an industry magazine uh the institute of conservation uh, have an industry magazine and i did uh, i th- i think i did a little article for them about the book i pitched it and said you know can i can i tell you about this new thing that i've done and uh so i did an article about myself i think they called it branching out, branching out or something like that and i tied it more into the conservation which the book has got stuff about uh restoration but it you know it's not deeply focused on that um and um, I did a giveaway with that. I've um, also uh, used blog posting, but tried to find people to post on their their sites who are slightly conservation angled, so that I'm hitting an audience that I think would be a um, a good fit for my book. But and you know. Plenty of conservators, uh, you know, read Dan Brown and that kind of thing, which is kind of where my books sort of lie. But the difference is not ones where other authors are pitching. And this is something that I've learned through my my work, really, because um, if you want to sell, um, if you want to sell something better, it's always good to be within a, a, a group that are selling something similar but not the same so that your thing stands out slightly but that it it works within the context um i have a, a couple of artists that work for me and they always say that it's no good trying to sell they 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 do fine art for themselves it's no good trying to sell art at artists fairs which is something that you would think would be 
completely logical. Where else would you sell art? It's much better to do something like go to a craft fair where you've actually got people with all sorts of things, um, craft handbags, craft uh, slippers, craft jewellery, and then sell your paintings because your paint, there's not many other people to compete with. And so that's been my philosophy with trying to market my books. It's giving something away for nothing in the sense that I'm writing them a feature of some description, but I'm pitching it at an audience that is not oversaturated. I'm interested to know, given that you've got uh, young children at the moment, that's very, very time consuming. Obviously, they have to take your main attention. You've also got uh, a business that you're that you're running as well. Yeah. I, I'm interested to know. I think your story is very interesting because you're, you're different from most authors, and that most authors, the the writing is the dream. It, it seems to yeah. me that this has got to run alongside your life. So I, I'm wondering where you want the writing to take you. If I said to you, where do you want to be in five years' time? I'm guessing uh, you'd still be doing the restoration, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. No. Do you know where I would like the writing to take me? Um, I need to, in the next, mm, I'll say seven years, because I like the number seven, mm. I need to create um, a uh, non-fiction brand uh, that I, and a, uh, a blog, a podcast um, for people in my field, for that segment of um, my field, so that when I hit... Uh, retirement age I no longer need to climb up statues when when my back's aching and my my fingers hurt and it's cold I can make money online through the but related to the field that um, I have worked in all my life and what the fiction has done apart from being a fantastic pleasure it has taught me how to build that because you only have to listen to uh, the brilliant Joanna Penn and uh, people like Yarrow Starrick and uh, understand how they have created through a niche field an entire online business and so my the end game will be to use what I've learned through the fiction to create a, a retirement uh, project because I definitely don't want to be somebody who just mows the grass I I, I would like to stay in my game and have something to keep my brain ticking over and be able to write my fiction but it not be quite so arduous because our our work's really physical it's fascinating to hear your story because it's so different from what everybody else uh, uh, tells me on the podcast (laughs) and i can't believe that our hour hour is up so i I need to finish by asking you if you would to just tell us the best places to find out about you and can i also ask you to mention while, while you're giving us the list of of links can you give us the uh, URL for your restoration business too, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, the site's brilliant. Oh, great! Um, the uh, the business uh, where you can find uh, out all about the lovely statues that we do is www.antiquebronze.co.uk, and I have my own website for my fiction at www.lucybranch.com. Uh, which is a Wix website. <laughs> I, I oh, wasn't going to give you a so hard time sorry. about it. <laughs> Do you know what? That is, again, a throwback issue from having been through a company that has done it for you. And so I have created a new uh, WordPress one, but uh, that will have to come later. Um, 
and I really enjoy Twitter, um, which is something that the, the book world has uh, taught me because I didn't know about it before then. Um, and I'm at, at Lucy Branch 11. Uh, if anybody would like to tweet me, I'll tweet you back. <laughs> and um, I think they are the predominant channels that you will find uh, me at. At the moment, my books are on uh, just on Amazon. Uh, you'll, uh, if you put in a rarer gift than gold or my name, Lucy Branch, uh, you'll find it or a uh, girl in a golden cage. And, um, I'm at with select at the moment just because I only have the two novels. And as soon as I get three, I will be onwards and upwards. I hope. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>